Turn with me to John 15. Either open, click, swipe, whatever you need to do to open God's Word. As remember, you're not really here to hear me. You're here to hear God's Word. So that is what has primacy this evening. So I'm sure many of you either who have kids have heard this phrase, or if you were a kid once, which you all were, right, uh, you have said this phrase too as you've been traveling on a long trip. Are we there yet? Right? How many of you heard that or said that? All right? Okay. So I can have the first slide, please. We're almost there. Okay? So on January 8th, I showed this slide as we've been walking through the Gospel of John. We're almost there, okay? After tonight, we have six more chapters left. And we've gone through uh, Jesus' earthly ministry, and we're now in that red box, his, his final evening, his Thursday night, uh, before he's arrested and crucified. And those verses, I mean, those chapters in chapters 13 through 17 is one long discourse Jesus is having with his disciples. And we've been going through and said that you have chapters 13 through 16, our little mini-series as Jesus is talking to his disciples and instruct them what are the marks that distinguish a disciple of Jesus Christ. I just want you to realize this is one long discourse because you know, the original Greek doesn't have these chapters, right? Uh, they weren't added until 1555. The verses and chapters added so we can actually have it a little easier to understand and find our place as we're talking about it. But all these chapters, one long sermon, basically, <laughs> that Jesus is telling his disciples, instructing them his last evening. Second slide, please. So, we started off in chapter 13, talking about the first couple of marks that distinguish us as a disciple of Christ, loving one another and serve one another. And then we moved on to be full of hope and walking in the truth. And tonight in chapter 15, we're going to see abiding in Christ and citizens of God's kingdom are two additional marks. Now, if I was actually putting this together and not the Holy Spirit, I actually would put the diet's marks first because everything else flows from them. But the Holy Spirit knows better than I do and has been orchestrating this into a nice full story that we're going to see end up next week. So come back next week, right, and be ready to understand why it means we can persevere and be full of joy. Okay, but tonight, we're going to focus on, as disciples of Jesus Christ, the big idea tonight, disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to abide in him and demonstrate citizenship in God's kingdom. We are called to abide in him and demonstrate citizenship in God's kingdom. Or if you need it in three words, abiding in citizenship. Okay, that's the big idea. There you go, Mr. Barney. There you go. Okay, we left off chapter 14, verse 31 last week. You remember what it said? Last words, rise, let us go from here. Okay, they're at their final supper in the upper room. Uh, Jesus has been instructing them. They have finished the meal. Judas has left uh, to do what he is supposed to be doing. And Jesus says, let's rise and move over here. And he's going to start their journey from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus is just not going to be silent. He knows he only has a few hours left with his disciples. And so he's going to be teaching them in motion. Um, as they're walking along, he's going to be teaching and instructing them. And that's what this, he's doing tonight. He hasn't stopped talking. He's still instructing his disciples. Yeah, everything's a teachable moment with him. And what he's going to be doing tonight is DTR with his disciples. So what do I mean by DTR? 
what comes to your mind when I say those, the acronym, right? Well, context, maybe. If you're in physiology, it means deep tendon reflexes. In uh, math, it means degrees to radians. If you're auto mechanic, it means the drivetrain. Uh, academics, it means the vision, the vision of translational research. But most of you, I think, probably came to mind to find the relationship, right? Okay, popped up in the late 1990s, early 2000s, as individuals were chatting and texting and on social media with one another, saying, what's the DTR? Let's define our relationship. Are we boyfriend and girlfriend exclusively? Are we just casually dating? Or are we going to get married? All right? Define the relationship. Well, Jesus is not going to define a relationship romantically. Okay? So don't get worried. You don't know where am I going with this, right? I don't remember any Jesus doing any romantic stories. He, he doesn't. But he's going to define the relationship spiritually with his disciples in this one chapter here. And, and it's for us as well. So I forget to the third slide. And here's a summary of what he's doing. We are as believers, or disciples in the middle. He's going to talk about three relationships in this passage. Our relationship with Jesus Christ, we are to abide with him. Our relationship with fellow believers, we are to love one another. We've already talked about that earlier in chapter 13, but he's going to repeat it. And then our relationship as a believer with the world. We have a responsibility to witness to them, but we also are going to say that the world is going to hate us. And so that's what it means by to be a citizen of the God's kingdom. And so tonight, we're going to focus on, since we've already talked about love one another, we're not going to focus on that passage tonight, because we've already talked about it in chapter 13. We're going to focus on abiding in Christ and the citizenship of God's kingdom. And we're going to see what Jesus has to say about that in terms of our relationships spiritually with those two entities. So I'm going to start off by reading uh, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll walk through it together. So chapter 15, starting in verse 1, here's what God's word says. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to, my, prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be full in you, and that your joy may be full. We see here, Jesus speaks in another parable, the parable of the grapevine. And what's interesting, if we think back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, how did it begin? At a wedding feast, right? Beginning of his ministry, turning water into what? Wine. Now here at the end of his ministry, what is he talking about? Well, he's taken the cup of wine, that meal, the Passover meal, and made it a word picture, the Lord's Supper. And now he's talking about a parable of the grapevine. 
He starts his ministry talking about grapes and grapevine and ends his ministry the same way. Isn't that amazing? Kind of a little wow moment, right? That Jesus, the Holy Spirit, has orchestrated this. These two bookends of his ministry. So why has he done that? And the next slide, please. Well, it's because of viticulture, right? In the Judean culture, they would have been very comfortable and understanding and seeing all around them grapevines in vineyards. And this is actually the vineyard at Texas A&M Gardens, right? So they have several vines out there getting different uh, varieties of grapes. You can go, go out there and look at them and see which ones are doing well in the heat and which ones are not. I went actually earlier this week, and they're actually all doing wonderful. Um, so... My grass is dying, but the grapevines are doing great. Okay, <laughs> so maybe I should plant grapevines. But um, and so they would have been used to seeing these things, right? It was an agricultural society. Um, Old Testament also understood this. New Testament understood this. So Jesus again is using something in common everyday life to talk about and tell us a message. And what he's telling us is the next slide is three components. Right? We see that there's a vine dresser. And who's the vine dresser in verse 1? God the Father is the vine dresser. He's the one taking care of the grapevines. He's going to be the one watering it, fertilizing it, putting it on the trellis, pruning it, or getting rid of ineffective canes and burning them. He is the vine dresser. And we'll talk more about what that means in a moment. We see that Jesus is the vine. That vine includes the rootstock and the trunk and the cordons. Right? That's all the grapevine. And that's Jesus. And we, as believers, are the branches, those shoots and canes that come off the grapevine. We are as his branches. And the branches are what produces what? The grapes, the fruit. That is his intent, is for us to be fruitful. Now, as anyone who knows who has planted fruit trees or vegetables, you have to tend to things, Right? You just can't go, let it go willy-nilly. You won't get a big fruit production or you'll get the wrong production. And so it has to be pruned every now and then. Uh, if you have too many buds and shoots, it, it puts too much energy in trying to keep them all alive and you'll have small grapes. Okay? If you have too few, too few shoots, you also will actually have less flowers and less grapes. It has to be a fine balance in between. And the vine dresser does that. Okay? He prunes things, and we'll talk about what pruning means in our life, so that we are fruitful. But in the story we just read, in the parable, we have to main what? We have to be attached to the vine, right? If, the, if that branch is not attached to the vine, it's just a dead twig, right? So it has to be with that. And we see that in the first verse. I am the, Jesus is speaking, I am the true vine. The Father is the vine dresser. Now this I am, by the way, is the last, the seventh I am statement, the last one that Jesus has spoken in John. Uh, John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. In John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, I'm the door to the sheep. In John uh, 10, he also says, I'm the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And last week in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this evening, I am the true vine. Again, I am, ego e me, equating himself with divinity, the God, the I am, back when Moses was in front of the burning bush, right? Okay. Jesus is the I am. I find it interesting, I hope you do too, that it just doesn't say I am the vine. It says I am the what vine? The true vine. What does he mean by that? Are you curious? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) 
Okay, because it's just not any vine, right? It's not the vine, it is the true vine. And we saw a little bit of that in 1 John. He says, I am the true light. And in chapter 10, we get the concept he is the true shepherd. And so there's a little distinction there. And now he is the true vine. Well, for us to understand this, and the disciples would have understood this as as hearers back then. Remember, they're celebrating Passover. They're reflecting back in what the Old Testament has said. So they would have instantly understood what Jesus meant. And so for us to understand what it means to be the true vine, we're going to have to go back to the Old Testament a little bit. So I have three um, passages we're going to look at together. Okay, the first one, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Keep your finger where here in John 15. I don't know how you do that electronically, keep your finger there. But anyway, that's the advantage of having a book, right? Keep your finger there. Isaiah chapter 5. And I'm going to read uh, probably just the first seven verses here. This is talking, the Lord is speaking here. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. O now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done to it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God planted a vineyard. It was supposed to be the nation of Israel. And it was supposed to be fruitful of righteousness, right? And wisdom. And reflecting God's glory. Sharing the gospel with the nations. Righteousness. But instead, what did Israel yield? Wild grapes, right? Bloodshed and outcry. Not consumable grapes, not wild grapes. These wild grapes are unconsumable, right? They're bitter. They're useless for wine. Um, in the Hebrew, this, this useless, these wild grapes, it means stinking or worthless. Not a pleasant incense to God, but something that stunk is useless to him. He didn't want wild grapes, right? He wanted nice fruitful grapes that we all get from the grocery store, right? Nice big massive grapes. That's what he wanted. But now they're useless. They're rebellious, And so he judges them, right? He's going to remove his protection. He's going to remove his nourishment. And they're going to be destroyed as punishment, as discipline. And later on we'll see why. Because he loves them, right? He wants them to come to repentance. Let's go to Psalm 80. So here we see the nation of Israel is supposed to be the good vineyard. But they're not following God. And we look at Psalm 80. It has three parts. We're only going to look at one of them. Um, the three parts you'll see, they're separated by a refrain. There's a, in verse 3, 7, and 19, all say the same thing. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. They're pleading to God for restoration. They're pleading to him for help. And I'm going to start on verse 8, the last section. It says, you, God, brought a vine out of Egypt. So he took Israel out of Egypt, right? 
put them to the promised land. You drove out the nations and planted it in, in the promised land. You cleared the ground for it. You took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches that sent out its branches to the sea and to its shoots into the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along pluck away its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. And here's their plea, verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. For the son whom you have made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. And let your hand be on the man of your, of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we call upon your name. Restore, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. So they're repenting, right? They realize we've messed up. <laughs> We're confessing our sin, pleading in God for help, right? They've been disciplined. Please, God, save us. And then let's go to Isaiah 27. And let me start about starting verse two. So the first verse, God has come. He has slayed Satan, uh, the Leviathan. This is talking about the end times. Verse two, in that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Again, he's the vine dresser. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day and night. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them hold, lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel shall blossom, put forth shoots, and fill the whole world with fruit. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, right? From the stock of David. He has planted him. He will bring forth fruit. Wonderful grapes that will flourish and save the world. This is the true vine. This is why it says Jesus is the true vine. He is the answer to the plea of Israel. He is the restorer. He is the restorer for us as well. Okay, let's go back to John 15. And the hearers then would have understood, the disciples would have understood what he meant when he says, I am the true vine. He is the savior of the world, right? The Messiah. He's coming back to save them. Jesus is going to accomplish what Israel is not able to do. Israel is not able to remain completely righteous and save the nations. Jesus is. Amen? And then in verse 4, there's this odd word. Jesus says, abide in me. We don't use that word much in our vernacular, right? So what does that word abide mean? Um, most of us think about it like our house. Like you reside in your house, you abide in your house, right? I abide there, all my things are there, my books are there, my favorite pillow I sleep on. I mean, I abide there. I abide in my abode, right? That's what we most think of. But it means much more than that, this word abide, both in this text, context, and in the original Greek. It's the original, it's mino is the word, and it means an inward, enduring personal communication. An inward, enduring personal communication. And I thought all week to try to think of an illustration to help you understand that. And finally, 
about 12.45 this morning, God woke me up with the answer. <laughs> so, and, and that is, and it, it'll make perfect sense to you when I say it. It's the a mother and child in utero. Okay? So, the mother. Placenta and umbilical cord attached to the child. Everybody touch your belly button. All right? Okay? That's where you're attached to the mother. All right? In utero. Thank you, Chad. <laughs> The child abides with the mother. Gets all its nutrients, its antibodies, its hormones, oxygen, everything from the mother. And waste is removed by the mother through that system as well. Because why? The baby abides with the mother. Without that umbilical cord and placenta, what happens? The baby will die. If something happens to the mother, what happens? The baby will die. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I want you to abide with me in the same way. I want you to receive all your nutrients from me, all your sustenance, all your existence from me and me only. You are the branch. I am the vine. You are to abide with me in the same way. It means to exist with him. We exist in him and nowhere else and no one else. That's why we read Ephesians, 6, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship, right? Why? Because we abide in him and he is in us. It's both a mystery and a miracle, right? As I thought about it. We exist in Christ. The moment of salvation, we are grafted into the vine of Jesus Christ. I can't understand how it happens. I just know it happens. And praise God, it has happened in my life and your life as well. We are grafted in God's family. Jesus is my brother. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. In Christ, right? We are in the vine. We exist by his grace. It's irrevocable. The branch can never be taken from that vine. And that deserves an amen, right? It's irrevocable. And because of that, you see in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am He it is that bears much fruit from apart from me. You can do what? Nothing. I can't do anything worth glorifying God without Christ. I have to abide in him in order to do that. And remember, that's the whole focus of the Gospel of John. Magnifying the glory of Jesus Christ. Who himself what? Always is magnifying God the Father. And he wants us to do the same. No believer can achieve anything of spiritual value without abiding in Jesus. You can't do it independently. We have to have him and the help of his Holy Spirit. In verses two through three, you see some interesting words there. Um, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he what? He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So that may bear more fruit. And verse three, already you are clean. This word prune, remove, and clean are all very similar words in the Greek. So it's hard to see that in the English. And John is using that repetition on purpose uh, to show that God, the vine dresser, is active in our lives. He's doing things, right? You wouldn't think, I mean, he's doing something. He's pruning us, right? I'm, I'm being fruitful. Why is he going to prune me, right? I understand him cutting away the canes that aren't producing fruit and throwing them in the fire. That makes sense. But he's pruning me as well. We're going to get that to in a minute. But he's active. He's an active vine dresser. God is just not some figurehead in the sky that doesn't care about what's going on in the world. 
as other religions teach. God is here. There's even a song like that, right? God is here. (laughs) He is present in our lives in everything that we do. He knows everything we're thinking. We can never hide anything from him. He's ever present. Omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, and so forth. So let's talk about pruning. Why do we need pruning? Well, pruning is necessary in our spiritual lives, just as it is in a plant, right? So I prune a plant to help it what? Produce more. So it's healthy. And God's going to prune us as well. He removes sin and superfluous things that limit our fruitfulness. It could be something as simple as maybe I'm spending too much time watching TV rather than focusing on his word. So he's going to prune me so that I focus on his word. Or it could be something more egregious that I'm in, in a habitual sin, and he's going to prune me of that. And his pruning methods, God has two knives as a vine dresser. One is his word, and the other is affliction in our lives. You've seen both in Israel, right? God has spoken a command through a prophet, and they obey. Or if they don't obey, he sends what? Afflictions from other nations, right? To discipline them until they repent. God does the same thing for us. Spurgeon once said, the word is often the knife, the word of God, with which the great husbandman prunes the vine. And brothers and sisters, if we were more willing to feel the edge of the word and to let it cut away something that may be very dear to us, we should not need so much pruning by affliction. It is much, it is because the first knife does not always produce the desired result that another sharper tool is used by which we are effectually pruned. See, God gives us afflictions when we don't obey his word, right? He's trying to get our attention. He disciplines us because he loves us. And he wants to prune those things from our lives so we can be fruitful. And as we are fruitful, we are glorifying him. So what are these afflictions? Many forms, right? It could be a sickness, a hardship, lost material possessions, relationships, whatever it may be, God's going to get our attention and discipline us to try to get us to be pruned. We have to accept the pruning, right? We have to repent, right? So what does God do? I mean, that can be hurtful. I mean, he's coming at me with a knife, right? To prune me, right? Pruning hurts, right? Discipline hurts. Every kid who's gotten a spanking says amen, right? Pruning hurts, right? But God does it because he loves us. Hebrews 12, 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son he receives, And the purpose of that discipline is what? For us to repent. To turn a 360, I mean not 360, 180, not 360, 180, and come back to him, right? That's what we're supposed to do. And we are to be fruitful, it says in this passage. Fruit is mentioned, what, six or seven times in this passage. What is God talking about fruit? First of all, it is fruit and not fruits, right? There's only one plant, and it's carpos here. It's talking about one fruit. Um, it's not talking about many fruits. Um, God is only one vine. I mean, Jesus is only one vine, not multiple t- different types of vines. And so when we say the fruit of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit, for the very same purpose. Israel was not bringing forth fruit. They were wild grapes, and God had to discipline them. We are supposed to have visible fruits, right? That we are authentic believers in Jesus Christ. It says so in verse 8. 
By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How do people know that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ? Already we saw one way is by loving one another and the other is by the fruit you are producing. We are supposed to have that visible display. If we're a branch on the vine, we are supposed to be producing fruit. And if we're not, God's going to prune that. Right? Or if we're a dead branch, not really part and not really abiding with a vine, not accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, He's going to cut that and burn it in the fire of judgment. So, what does that fruit look like? You already had the slide up. Thank you. So, we could spend hours talking about fruit, right? This is just a quick example of some things here to help us kind of focus. Christ like character, right? Fruit of the Spirit. Is what? Love, joy. Keep going. Very good. Some of you said it. Some of you sang it. I don't care which. You got it. Okay. So that are some of the, that's part of the, the character, the conduct we're supposed to have. Second, purposeful, purposeful phrase. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips. Giving thanks to his name. When we praise, when we're singing to him, it's the fruit of our lips, right? Bubbling up from our heart. That's one of our fruit. Generous giving. Philippians talks about that as well. Being fruitful and helping others. Effective evangelism. Christian conduct. Uh, Colossians 1.10. You're supposed to be fruitful in every good work, it says. A meaningful ministry. Paul said, I want to come to Rome so that you can be fruitful like the other Greeks I've been with. These are just common examples. We could go through the entire New Testament and pick out examples of fruit. But this is what God wants us to do. And then there's this interesting verse at the end, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, so all this I've just said, Jesus is summarizing, all this is so that you may have joy and that your joy may be full. And you're thinking... Okay, he's getting ready to go. He knows he's getting ready to go to Gethsemane, be arrested, and then be crucified and die. Why is he talking about joy, right? How could he be talking about joy at a moment like this? I'll answer that next week. (laughs) Well, that's one of the next marks, okay, that he talks about in chapter 16. So come back Sunday, next Sunday. Cliffhanger, there you go. Okay, let's go to verse 18. Again, I'm going to skip the middle section because we talked about loving one another already. So verse 18 and 27, it talks about being citizens of God's kingdom. Okay, this is our interaction between us, a believer and the world. So let me read those passages, that passage for you. Starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Not a great way to start off evangelism, is it? You're going to be hated. Verse 20, remember the world, oops, sorry, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Verse 21, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But then the helper comes. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You've all seen a lot of um, news lately about UFOs and documents releasing information about UFOs from the government and so forth. I'm here to tell you aliens do exist, but we are they. Okay? We are the aliens, right? An alien is not from outer space. It's a person from another, world, from another part of the world, another part of the nation. Right? We as Christ followers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, are from another world. We are from a heavenly kingdom. We are an alien, a sojourner, as Peter calls it. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. So what is a citizen? A citizen is a person who legally belongs to a country and has the rights and protection of that country. Now think about what that means about heaven, right? We legally belong, we legally belong there. Why? Because of what Christ paid for us and has the rights and protection of that country. We can enter heaven, right? And we have heaven's protection. When we first were born and in growing up in this world, we had an original citizenship of the world, full of sin, fleshly desires, and eternally separated from God. And if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior yet, that is your citizenship. And God's word says, what happens to that citizenship of the world? It will be judged and eternally separated from him. However, when you answer the Holy Spirit's conviction and call to accept him as your Lord and Savior, you become a new citizen you leave your old citizenship and become a citizen of the kingdom of God. That is forever, eternal, irrevocable. When we, that moment of salvation, you were born into the kingdom of God. Nothing you had to do because Christ did it all. Already. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have the slide number six up. So there's a copy of my passport with some numbers redacted. Um, so since this is on YouTube, I don't want my passport numbers floating around the world. Um, so I've got two more years left on that. And if you look at it, it's issued by the United States government. And it has that government seal on it. And it says that I'm a citizen of the United States of America. And under the authority, I was given this by the United States Department of State. That's my passport. Well, as citizens of God's kingdom, we have a heavenly passport as well. The issuer is not the United States of America, it's God. He issues the passport, the kingdom of God. And it's sealed by the Holy Spirit. And it says you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the authority is Jesus Christ himself. So when you accept Jesus as Lord and your Savior, you have this passport, this spiritual passport as a kingdom of, in the kingdom of God. So remember that, 1 Peter 2.11 says, we are sojourners in this world. Why? Because we really belong in heaven as disciples of Jesus Christ. We are just passing through this world. We are to 
share in heaven's honors and the common rights and property of heaven and be under the kingship of Jesus Christ, not under the suffering of this world and their condemnation of sin. No, kingdom of God, citizen of his kingdom. Now, in this world, I can have um, a dual citizenship, right? I can have a citizenship of the United States and another country if I want to. But you cannot have dual spiritual citizenship. Okay? You cannot have citizenship in the kingdom of God and of the world. Okay? You just cannot. Uh, Spurgeon said, there's no comparison between a soaring seraph and a crawling worm. Christian men ought to so live that if it were idle to speak of a comparison between them and the men of the world. It should not be a comparison, but a contrast. No scale of degree should be possible. The believer should be a direct and manifest contradiction to the unregenerate. There's nothing in comparison between us and the world, kingdom of God and the world. No comparison, a severe contrast. Why? The world is producing what? Wild, sour grapes, Right? We are producing the good, fruitful grapes of the grapes of the Spirit, as we're supposed to. But we have to make a choice, right? We can't have dual citizenship. Elijah did this in First Kings eighteen. Gathered the people of Israel and uh, nations around them, and says, "How long shall you be between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow Him; but if Baal, follow Him. You have to make a choice. Can't worship both." Joshua 24, same thing. Choose this day whom you will serve. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Can't have dual citizenship. We even see this in Proverbs, reading through Proverbs. It's contrast, right, between the righteous and wise and the evil person, right? That contrast. Now, because of our new citizenship, we just read the world hates us. Expect that. Okay, it should not be a surprise to you. Jesus said, you will suffer as I did because you are mine. And it's interesting, he starts off verse 18, if the world hates you. And then later on it says, when the world does hate you, he's moving, right? For it's not really when if, it's they are going to hate you. And he reminds them, in verse 21, why? But all these things they will do to you on account of whose name? What kind of Jesus' name? They hate me. It's not about you. Don't take it personal. They don't hate you personally. They're hating Jesus Christ in you. It's because of him. Jesus is radical to the world. So to be a Christian, a citizen of the kingdom of God... You have to be separated from the world. It's a clear break. And they're going to be confused. 1 Peter 4, 34, 4 says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them. And so they malign you. They're going to be surprised that you act different, Right? Because your citizenship is elsewhere. Verse 22, Jesus speaks. If they had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. If Jesus had not come back to this this first time, 
as the Messiah. And they had only received the law. They would not be convicted of sin. But now that Jesus is here, he has shown them the way, the truth, and the life. His actions, the miracles he presented, showed that he was the son of God and showed God's full plan. And they rejected those things. And that's what condemns them. The word of Jesus Christ. They reject Christ. They saw him, hated him, hated the father. And that's what convicts them and condemns them. And he closes after talking about all this hate the world will have for us. Verse 26 seemed a little interesting and odd, right? But when the helper comes, talking about all this negative hate, and then all of a sudden something very joyous. When the helper comes, why is he talking about the helper coming? Well, he's going to send the helper because we are helpless in the midst of all this hate. We can't contend on it on our own. It will move us into depression. We will want to join the world again. None of us like to be hated. None of us like to have all that stress. And so Jesus, I'm going to send you the helper, the Holy Spirit, to buttress you, to help you resist this world. Why? I have given you the seal on your heavenly passport, and that's the Holy Spirit. I'm sending him to you. And why? That last verse And you also will bear witness. Summary of the Great Commission. I'm sending you out to bear witness of me to the world. You're the witness of the world. Just know they're going to hate you. But I'm sending you out to be a witness. Now, there's much more to say about the kingdom of God, but I don't have time. And so in your community groups, I want you to look at Matthew 22. There's a parable of the wedding feast. That talks about it being analogous to the kingdom of God. So dive in that together in your community groups this week or on your own personal devotion time and see what God says about that. Now remember our big idea. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to abide in him and demonstrate citizenship in God's kingdom. I think all these marks that we are going over really invite us to do some self-reflection. Because we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are to have these marks. So I'm going to stick my finger in your Chick-fil-A Kool-Aid and stir it up a little bit, okay? So how are you doing being a disciple of Jesus Christ? So I'm asked first broad question. Are you abiding in Jesus? Are you a branch in the vine? Do you find your existence in Christ's love so real, so palpable, so powerful? Remember when you first got saved? How excited you were? Have you lost that? Don't. Don't lose that excitement. Your existence is in Christ, in Christ alone. Is your existence, your nourishment coming from the vine? I've said this before. You've got to be in God's word daily. I'm not being legalistic. I'm just preaching God's word. To abide with him, you need his nourishment. You need to spend time in his word daily. You need to spend time in speaking to him in prayer. How else are you going to abide in the vine? 
How else are you going to get that nourishment? You don't want to be a cane that is cut off. You don't want to be one that is pruned. You want to be nourished. And what are you consuming for your nourishment? Is it God's word or something else? Remember Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We call this our filter at the house. Uh, yeah. Should we look at this magazine? Should we watch this TV show or movie? Does it abide by this filter? So what are you consuming? God's word or something else? Are you a sick branch or a healthy branch? And how is your fruit bearing? Only you can answer that, right? If you're a believer, you're supposed to be bearing fruit. And if you're not bearing a lot of fruit or unhealthy fruit, the vine dresser will come and prune you. I didn't say that. He did. So God's coming with his shears, right? He will afflict you because he loves you. If you're a non-believer, you're really a dead branch. I'm just, just be quite blunt. Um, and destined for judgment. So tonight, though, you can change that. You can ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. And be grafted into the vine eternally. Never to be separated from God. Second broad question. Are you demonstrating in your life that you're a citizen of the kingdom of God? If you're truly abiding in Jesus, the answer is always going to be yes. They go hand in hand. Are you walking a talk or are you a hypocrite? I'll just be blunt. Are you just playing church? You may fool people around us, but you're not going to fool God at all. And Jesus had clear words for those who were religious hypocrites. Three times in Matthew, he used this phrase, you brood of vipers. He was quite clear how he thought, what he thinks about that. Are you living with your eternal heavenly citizenship in mind? Or are we so focused, right, in the world around us? And it's easy to do that, right? Especially men, husbands, where we have responsibilities, be spiritual and provider, it's easy for us to get focused in the world. But we have to remember, this is not our home. And this is not our family's home. We are to be heavenly minded, living for eternity. So what are we investing in? What are we amassing things? Are we amassing things and what are they amassing them for? Our time, talents, and treasures, they should be focused on eternity, right? I'm going to use Bill as an example, not to focus on him because he's, we're just going to glorify God, but he's finally, I think, going to retire, right? And, but what's he going to do in his retirement? He's going to spend his days investing in decent property, taking care of it, helping build it, interacting with those in the community who visit there and talking with him and sharing the gospel. He's going to be tinkering for Christ is what I call it, right? He's investing in what? His heavenly home. And I don't, again, I don't say this to lift him up, but we're lifting Christ up. That's what we're supposed to be doing. He's modeling that. We're supposed to be that heavenly minded. So I was asked the worship team to come up. This is really our time to respond. 
to the Holy Spirit. We have this passage that God is asking us to reflect. Are we abiding in him? Are we acting like we're citizens of the kingdom of God? I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit. Don't quench him. I want you to respond to him. There's a prayer room over to the side. These steps are available. Obviously, in your seats. I don't care if you're in the sound booth and the worship team. The Holy Spirit's convicting you right now. Respond. The worship service will go on without you. Okay? We, it, we will manage. The most important thing right now is our heart posture. Everybody in this room. Is it appropriately aligned with God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Are we abiding with him in all that we are? Let me close this in prayer. Father, forgive us for not abiding in you, for thinking that we got life taken care of without you. Forgive us for not having actions, a mindset, or a heart, posture of being citizens of your kingdom. Hmm. Forgive us, Father, for just being focused on us and not you. We're for you in this very moment, God. Our hearts are uncovered and our souls are laid bare before you. You see all. We confess, Father, a need for your mercy, your steadfast love. We thank you for your faithfulness and your patience with us. Even, yes, Father, even your discipline of us because of your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.